Welcome back to Unpack This, where academic misfits unload their shit. After a somewhat extended break, Constance and I are back. I am Joe Shu, And I am Constance Bailey. I was going to say we're back and better than ever, but it's the end of the semester, so we're probably burnt the hell out. <laughs> we're, we're back and burnt out, uh, which is less less catchy. But we are very happy to be recording another show. And since... Constance has some news. We figured that would set us up for the topic today. So would you like to share your news? Sure. So I have accepted a position, comparable position. Um, so what we sometimes call a lateral move, but um, a tenure track assistant professorship at Georgia State University. And it is also in the English department. I will probably also affiliate with Africana Studies. So in some ways identical to the position here, but the position is for a folklorist and 20th century African-American lit specialist. So uh, quite ironically, the two things that I like to think I do well, I'm not entirely sure, sure that's true, but... Clearly, um, you got the job. So clearly <laughs> other people think that you do it well. Some, someone thinks it. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was like a job ad written for you, basically, so... Oh, yeah, it was very, uh, I was very, very excited when it, when it came down. Although, you know, of course... With moves, there's always the bittersweet. I've made some great friends, have some wonderful colleagues here. My kid is in high school and will graduate next year. So it was definitely a difficult decision. But in terms of, you know, location, which is a lot about, we talked about this, I think, in one episode, right? Um, Georgia is ideal in many ways because I have so many family and friends. And I think we'll talk later about, you know, kind of the things that are important in an academic career and things that are, you know, sustain you. So. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there for now, but I'm excited. Yay. Yeah. So I figured we would use this episode to talk about lateral moves kind of, but also just starting academic jobs in general. I feel like when I got my first job, it was kind of like every other stage in academia where you're sort of thrown into the water and people just kind of hope that you swim, even though nobody's told you about swimming or what it looks like or how to do it. You just kind of flail around for a while and ask if this looks like swimming and, you know, hope you stay alive. But that's that's basically how I felt the first time that I went into the job. So I figured we'd, we'd talk a little bit about both starting a job and also the lateral moves. Yeah, that sounds good to me. All right. Well, let's get into unpacking this thing. All right. So what do academics mean when we say a lateral move? Can you elaborate on that for our non-academic listeners? Sure. I feel like I'm using it capaciously, maybe, like I do with all words, uh, but to mean uh, a move to a position of a equivalent rank that I'm told happens more often when you're an assistant, that it's there are just fewer positions at higher levels. Lateral moves are difficult by nature in academia just because of how few positions we have increasingly so but it still do, does happen you know quite regularly both of us being examples so for me at least i i wasn't actively on the market but you know the dream job opened they reached out and i sent in an application 
even though, like you said, there were lots of things that would have kept me in Arkansas, it was just there are lots of different factors that you weigh about the positions that you take. And there were things that were appealing here. What about you? Have you always been looking to do that lateral move? I think the move is across rank, but also peer institutions, right? I think at least in terms of how most people talk about lateral moves, that it's if you're at an R1, the expectation is that you go to an R1 or that's well, and, I, think, and, I don't I don't know if that's part of the definition. But well, yeah, that's the thing. Disclaimer, we never have said we are experts. To Joe's point, we are the blind. Yeah. We're flailing around and calling it swimming is yes, what we're doing. Yes. So to be clear, but yes, yeah, so I think that is the expectation at least, right? And I don't know that that always plays out that way. But, but here's the thing about what I've heard about not like lateral moves or otherwise in terms of job hunting. I, I've heard it go both ways, right? That you can interview when you think that you like if you know that you want to leave, I wasn't actively on the market. You weren't actively on the market. So I think that's true for both of us. Of course, if you're not happy or you think that the situation or fit isn't right for you, then, you know, that's when people interview. I had not been planning to make a quote unquote lateral move in part because I guess I would be what you'd call an advanced assistant professor, which really is just semantics. I'm an assistant professor. <laughs> it's just I've been here longer. But my tenure dossier would have gone up next year, and we can talk about what that means. We can unpack that for you all probably in a subsequent mm-hmm. episode. And I have every expectation that it, you know, presumably would have been <laughs> would have been well received. Like I would have gotten tenure or whatever. And so a move right now was not necessarily advantageous. But you know, you have to think about in terms of starting new jobs or starting over the totality of your experience, and that's one of the things that has made it difficult to sustain my research and productivity here is not having a really extended network of family and friends. People like Joe left me high and dry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so I no longer have, you know, well, there was also a whole pandemic. So let's be clear. I didn't have a coffee shop writing buddy because Joe left, but also a pandemic. <laughs> so yeah, that um, one wasn't in my control. So anyway, there, there's a lot that goes into it. But yeah, I was not looking to make the quote unquote lateral move. It was, as you say, like a dream position opened up and, and incidentally happened to be kind of in a dream location. So let's let's go back a little bit and talk about starting jobs. I'm not actually sure I know the full extent of your background. How many academic positions have you held after graduate school? Oh, wow. Okay. So not that many, actually. It feels like a lot, but I think that's just because we work so freaking hard. If anybody out there wants to go in academia and you think, I don't think anybody who's in academia or in graduate school is under the insane assumption that somehow there are weekends and summers off, but people outside of academia, I have heard these things tossed around in ways Mm -hmm. that feel offensive to (laughs) to my ears. You really should be finished or have a defense date set. And that was not the case. So I took an instructor position at Southern uh, Southern Miss is what it's affectionately known as, but University of Southern Mississippi, Gulf Park campus. So Long Beach, Mississippi, beautiful white sand beaches. I often joke, juxtaposed with murky <laughs> Gulf of Mexico waters. But anyway, was a scenic drive, loved the campus. And same thing here, like I found some great friends, great colleagues who I'm still close with now. So that was a wonderful starting point. I was there for four years, I think. Mm. And I finished my dissertation during that process. But of course, I was teaching more. So I had four classes each semester. Although I think they did give me a reprieve when I first started because they knew that I was 
what we call ABD, right? All but dissertation. So from there, I went to Arkansas. So from instructor, I went, what is it? An upgrade. Once <laughs> I went from an instructor to an assistant professor. So that was not a lateral move. But let's pause and clarify. You wrote a dissertation while teaching a 4-4? Well, I finished a dissertation. Still, right. I had started a dissertation quite a while before that, but yeah, yeah. I did not go on the market early. I wanted to have my dissertation, um, you know, completed in a way that I could speak confidently about it. I also was fortunate enough to be in a program that you know provided us funding for us to be able to do that. And so Arkansas was my first job straight out of grad school. So I've been incredibly fortunate this whole journey. My plan was to stay in Arkansas until tenure at the least. I, I told my partner, you know, there are three jobs in this country where I would, you know, actively consider applying if they opened a position. And then lo and behold, that position happened. And here I am. Yeah, that worked out well. And, and I should say, Joe is the brains of this operation. So the, the other reason you probably did not go on early is because you're smarter than me, right? And that <laughs> you really you really should not. So I think I only have you by one, though, because, yeah, there was the instructor position, assistant prof at Arkansas, and then, and, and now, of course, assistant prof at Georgia State. We could talk at some point. I don't think we'll unpack it today, but we could talk about negotiations and, and what that means and what that looks like and tenure and all that. There's so many things, I think, you know, over the course of this podcast, what we find ourselves like things that unfold is that like, oh my gosh, we haven't talked about this. And what does this mean? And what even there, is it? There are all these things that we take for granted that people know and that we had to figure out mostly on our own because we did not know. Exactly. While we were pretending to swim. But what do you think, what was the hardest part about transitioning into your first academic appointment? So one was just inhabiting the position. I feel like, I felt like, you know, a, a, we talk about imposter syndrome. I felt like a grad student pretending to be a professor for a long period when I first got there to Arkansas. So part of it was just feeling like I could do the job. There's no like guidebook. There's no, you know, this is how, this is what committees are and what you do on them, you know, but all of a sudden you're there, you're on campus, you're suddenly running a bunch of committees or on a bunch of committees. You're tasked with all of these different things. You're mentoring students for the first time. And I don't know that we have open conversations about any of this, right? So they're like just figuring out a lot of the day-to-day and sort of like how to manage your time, I think, is something and, and your emotion is something that that took me a long time. I remember I was talking to a good friend who became a mentor over time about the number of committees that you're asked to be on when you are, say, the only person of color or queer person or trans person or whatever in any given space. And I was like, there are all these things calling for my attention and there's literally not enough of me to do the things. And she asked me, what's your criteria for saying yes? And I was like, oh, I'm supposed to have that, right? Like I'm supposed to have thought through the conditions under which I will agree to saying a thing rather than just accepting all of the things that come my way. So balancing my my eagerness to be a part of this new place, to meet the people, to be a good sport and good, a good mem- member of the department with my like very material need to be a sane human who sleeps and eats and functions, that, w- that was one of the big uh, challenging things I, in terms of starting my first job. What about you? Sleep. What is that? What? Yeah, right. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the work-life balance, or as someone at, at one of these workshops I've attended, it's called it life-work balance, has been how do you maintain your sanity? And part of it has been, yes, for sure, there's trying to negotiate obligations to things that are personally important to you, committee obligations, work. But for me, it was just literally being in an unfamiliar place, not having any network when I first got here. And one of the things that ended up happening, somewhat unfortunately, my grandmother passed away like within a month of my move. So when I went home, and when I went to the funeral, a cousin said, hey, you know, we have family there. And I was like, oh, wow. And they ended up being members of one of the local churches. And that ended up providing a little bit of support. These weren't people that I knew well, you know, they you know, grew up with my grandmother, but certainly still like them having children and grandchildren who could help keep an eye on Chloe when she was little. And I had another relative pass away within two or three months. So then I was traveling home for that. And then the next year, I, which would have been a year that I would have taken some, I think it was the year I took like a semester off for like research leave. But my mom was doing chemotherapy in Georgia. So I was trying to not really commute to Georgia, but, but going there frequently to try to give my siblings a little bit of a reprieve to help with her chemo. So that just ended up being a lot of the family stuff just ended up, and even now that I haven't been necessarily having, you know, like the last few years, thankfully have not been marred by a tragedy, but just having a kid who's in the band, be forewarned, if you've got a kid that is not junior high, high school yet, band mom, soccer mom, any type of adjective that is followed by mom, try to avoid that like the plague, because you will find that you want to be fair to your children and you know it's not necessarily their fault that you take in more than you can handle but you know to joe's earlier point that's why you really have to be kind of mindful about what to say yes and what to say no to because you still have to have something left for your partners your kids your pets or whoever at the end of the day and that was me just feeling like i didn't have anything left for anybody because just the day-to-day was so taxing mm. I, I want to connect with something that you said there about community and the importance of that, I think. So one of the things, the odd things about my initial transition from the grad program to my first job is, and I'm, I'm not particularly quiet or secretive about this, I did not like the place where I attended graduate school. It was also a site of many different forms of trauma to me. So being out of there for the first time, I felt like I could breathe. I didn't realize that I felt like I'd spent my last maybe four or five years of grad school feeling like I was holding my breath because of just how much sort of negative affect I had with the place. So just being out of there made me feel like I had suddenly more freedom and more emotional bandwidth than I'd had for you know the better part of a decade. And I was very fortunate in that at Arkansas, one of our colleagues in the creative writing program, so not totally connected to where we were fully, um, But still, one of our colleagues had been my creative writing mentor back in the grad program and one of the faculty members with whom I'd been the closest. So it wasn't that I had a full network built in, but I had somebody that I knew well, that I'd known for almost an entire decade, that I trusted. So when things happened on campus, I I had a person I knew I could text and say, okay, this, this happened. I don't know how to navigate it. Or, you know, what is this thing that I'm being asked to do? And I can't overstate how valuable that is to be able to have someone you can go to with the things and not even just having that person as a resource but also having the sort of confidence and safety and comfort that comes with having a person and a resource 
so the transition here was actually a little bit harder than that in that um, I got here in the middle of a pandemic. So relationality and connection uh, was not really built in. The campus is twice the size of the one at Arkansas. And I knew, I was like, you're about to go be a tiny speck in a much bigger pond. Um, but actually doing that in the middle of a pandemic, even though I, I you know, knew some people here, wasn't, wasn't quite the same, right? The environment of the world was a lot more chaotic. And so lacking that was more destabilizing than I anticipated, which I guess uh, connects me to the the second part of this that we were going to talk about, which is what what has helped. You know, you talked about how the lack of a built-in structure was a struggle with your first job. What made it better, or what strategies did you find? Yeah, well, you know what? So actually, I want to piggyback off your piggyback. That's a really great point that you mentioned about having someone, um, you know, that you know or that you feel comfortable with, even if it's just asking questions, having a resource, because that was certainly true for me at Arkansas, right? So one of my friends from graduate school, even though we only had like one year of overlap, um, Dr. Casey Kaiser, shout out to Casey. I'm I'm always trying to tag people on stuff. trying to get our mentions up or whatever but anyway Casey we had gone to Mizzou together and that was also boy talk about shared trauma and and spaces of trauma that could be a whole other episode but we had had you know good experience and so she was wonderful and when I visited campus or when I interviewed I think I actually had to use her office to hump breast milk because there still aren't campuses and many places that aren't friendly to or conducive to nursing mothers new moms all that good stuff but in spite of that, we made it work and, and she was wonderful in, in helping make that transition in terms of having a friendly face and being a support system. I don't know that I had, though, an emotional outlet, just in terms of a sort of personal outlet until I linked up with, I think, maybe the a semester or two before you and I linked up, I got with Nikita Reed, who, you know, shout out, she was on a previous episode. Um, and she and I clicked up and became friends. I had done some programming in the community, not, we're not in the community, on campus that utilized the community and intersected with the community. So having the local barbers come in and stuff like that. And so that kind of exposed, I don't want to say raise my profile because I that that implies something that is not true. <laughs> but, but I think it made more people aware that I was around and that I was here. And so by virtue of that, then people reached out to me. Um, and so that was helpful in facilitating community. But it was almost like, and I do feel this very much, if you build it, they will come. Oh, feel the dreams of reference. But I also feel the onus and the burden shouldn't be on junior faculty, Black women faculty, trans faculty institutions need to do more work. And I think we did, we we went on our soapbox a little bit on this when we talked about academic retreats (laughs) that aren't actually retreats. Um, But, you know, I really wanted to try to create like a, um, a elder care or child care network for junior faculty I was trying to figure out how to build this thing and try to partner with Child Care Center on campus. And there was liabilities. That was too much. I needed to be working on tenure in my book somewhere. I did not have the time for that. I do not have the time for that. So, yeah, I mean, those things are really, really helpful to the extent that they exist. Yeah. Well, I mean, even though the the Child Care Network did not happen, your 
profile in in building community and in in creating gathering spaces was really important to me when I came along. What was it? What did I get there two years after you? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, sometime in there, I arrived after you, but you were one of the first faculty who like consistently reached out and you know had it had an invitation for me to join in in particular spaces, and I think. For for many reasons, academics are busy. Uh, we all have limited bandwidth, whatever. But that 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 very simple gesture gets overlooked a lot when you have someone new like coming into a space, and is really important because otherwise you don't really have like an inroad into the communities and the groups that 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 exist on campus. So I mean, very honestly, our the what was it? I don't remember our. What did we call it? I, I, I just make up names, as people may or may not know. It was the League I, of was the the newish, Minorities. Was it the newish? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, is this our, was this our coffee shop writing group? Because I have created multiple groups. Uh, I can't I think it blurred. We, we had a group that was newish faculty. Yes. And we also called ourselves the League of Beleaguered Minorities. And there, it's like a Venn diagram somewhere. Yes, that's true. That's true. I think, okay, so I think it is that the newish <laughs> faculty group <laughs> literally just say made up uh listserv i think that one preceded the the league of beleaguered minorities which was an offshoot of the newish faculty well actually now that you put yeah it is just kind of weird convoluted venn diagram because i don't know which came first right the chicken or the egg <laughs> but but yeah for sure i mean i think that's the thing like to your point you do sometimes need an inroad. And the thing I think that gets hard or difficult is that when it's not structurally in place, like through the department or the college or the institution, it's hard for individuals to create that one because we're you know busy or overworked or we have competing priorities. But two, a lot of academics are even people who are like, I'm not an introvert, but I'm still ridiculously busy. People are always amazed, like, how in the hell do you find time for this shit? And I'm like, I have to, it's not that I have to do it. I do it because I know that it is important to someone like me who needs that sort of space and needs that mentoring or needs, um, you know, a cohort. And sometimes for whatever reason, the cohort that you come in with, is not, I mean, well, honestly, if it's an institutional cohort, there's people who like study plant botany. Like, I don't know what the hell they do. I mean, it's interesting, <laughs> but I'm not going to reach out to them for like a collaboration. I mean, I might because I just might because I'm crazy like that. But, but but realistically, they probably don't have that much relevance to what I do. So it becomes a real issue for me. I think I'm always concerned about how personally I can help affect larger system thing. I don't know shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean you've you've created spaces where the institution faltered in, in the gaps that, that they should have been filling. And to your point, it, it shouldn't be on the new junior people to do that for many reasons, not only because of time and lack of energy, but because you don't have the relationships, you know, like you don't know where the resources are. You don't know where you can move or who to connect with. Is this person safe? So having people who've already been there doing that work and welcoming you in and giving you the background is totally invaluable and often something that, I mean, one, institutions don't do for many reasons, oftentimes because these spaces serve to counter the violence of the institution. Um, and and also something that academics aren't necessarily very conversant in. There are a lot of folks who 
those who have not like had to think of these places as places of survival, um, mm-hmm. who haven't thought too deeply about how is it that I make this space survivable for people who experience it as, you know, a site of continued violence. That reminds me of that little meme or whatever, somebody's tweet that was going around. It's like, academics will acknowledge that this is a problem. How do we decolonize the academy? And then the solution for academics is like, let's create a dean of of decolonization. Decolonization, (laughs) Like, no, that's not not how you address these things. Yeah, that that is the reality. And I also think one of the things that I think can sometimes happen with institutions or or departments or programs is that we're not good at marketing what we do. Like we're English scholars or or rhetoricians. Actually, I would think rhetoricians would be better. But, you know, we do a thing. And let me be more nuts and bolts. Sometimes there are programs that exist or there are things that are helpful. I could be reinventing the wheel in a space, but I'm not aware that I'm reinventing the wheel because whatever resource or whatever mechanism the institution has in place to support faculty who are in precarious positions or who just need additional support. The bureaucracy is so whatever that you don't even necessarily know how to access it, right? And so that becomes a problem as well. So I think we just need to, one, be better about doing stuff like that. And to your point, we're not necessarily, you know, academia is not known (laughs) for, for being great about reimagining itself in a more hospitable and equitable as a as a more hospitable and equitable space but two even when it tries to do some things or does some things right i don't think it does a good job of announcing that hey you know here's here's what we're doing or you know here's what we want to do so i think that's a pr thing maybe well there's that and and we'll probably have a whole other episode on you know the dei grift at some point but the one of the challenges in these spaces one of these challenges in space and i i absolutely i don't know if you were as naive as i was but when i got on a new campus i was like oh there are all these diversity things i want to be involved in the diversity things let me go to them and then eventually you find that not all but a lot of diversity things in institutional spaces are pr right like they're they're things that make it look like we've done the work that we're actually unwilling to do and what they end up doing intentionally or not is wasting the time of a lot of marginalized people. Um, So that one of the things that institutions do is that they develop these patterns that one waste the time and energy and resources of people who do not have those things to spare, but also render a lot of that labor labor illegible. So like there are the formal DEI things that we've gone to that doesn't actually get the structural work we need done. And then there are the sort of like underground networks that we need to create to support one another's survival that we get no credit for because there, it's, not, it's not legible to the institution. And so there's all of this labor that is being swept under the table while we are being measured by totally different metrics about whether or not we've been productive this year. So I don't know. It's a, it's a whole mechanism that intentionally or not makes it much, much harder for marginalized people to survive, to be recognized for all of the, the work that they've done. Well, that's a really good point. I mean, yes. Oh, well, let me backtrack. No, I don't think I was as naive. So maybe you were naive, but I don't think I was naive about it. And I I have always said, because I did a lot of the the type of work I do now that, as to your point, that I don't actually get credit for anywhere, as far as I can tell, and how my tenure and promotion is evaluated. But committee work, I was like, um, I forget what the technical term, but it was basically like the ombudsman between graduate students and then like 
English department, the liaison person who was trying to negotiate grad student disputes. So I have always vehemently opposed being on (laughs) diversity committees, even though I am down for the cause. If there are actionable things going on (laughs) that don't necessarily involve photo ops, although I like a good photo op, just like (laughs) the next person, I'm happy to be involved in mentoring and supporting any kind of faculty member I can and any students that I can and anything that need to be done and that will have a meaningful impact on students and faculty of color, I'm down for a lot of DEI stuff. I just absent myself. I don't even, a lot of times don't even read the email. <laughs> if somebody says like, you have to do this training. I was like, oh crap, I better do it. You know, but um, I think I can attest to the fact that you don't read the emails because I remember texting you about things and having you say what now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, it was a good sign to me like, oh, I should not go to this thing. Yeah. But I mean, looking back on my naivete, it, it kind of surprises me too, because I, I wrote an entire dissertation about how institutions appropriate the experiences and and body minds of marginalized people. And still, you know, I think as a grad student, I saw faculty positions as this position of authority and power, which relatively, you know, it's nuanced in there. And I felt like, you know, now that I'm here, now that I get to be in the rooms where things happen, I want to be able to sort of like, you know, put my hand on the lever and do something about it. And it turns out that being in the room is not enough to put my hand on the lever or do something about it. Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. was a hard lesson. That is a hard lesson to learn. And I feel like that's what I feel like I kind of learned that. At grad, like, I mean, which again, to your point, faculty, you know, relative to graduate students, we have a, l- a little bit of power, but it's still not. I had faculty mentors who wanted things to change, but then there's so many levels of where they are in the in the tier of things didn't the dollars just didn't make sense they were so far down the the chain so we don't want to discourage people like if you can be in rooms where those conversations happen but for those of us who have sort of limited bandwidth resources in terms of emotional availability in terms of literal time availability so for me and I, I should probably be clear about that it's not that I would would not have served on a committee that was doing DEI work when that is very near and dear to my heart. It's just that because I have to prioritize my time and it's so limited, I know that a lot of times that work ends up being performative. So I would rather just do the DEI thing than go to DEI meetings or <laughs> or be on DEI committees or any of the other things around uh, DEI. I just want to do the work. Yeah, I think I, you know, talk about criteria. One of my criteria now when I'm asked to do a thing that has to do with creating more inclusive spaces on the surface, the first question I ask myself and that I try to find out is, are there actual resources behind this thing, right? Like if I do this work, are you actually going to respond to it? Is it going to go somewhere? Or are you just asking me to write a thing that gets, you know, slipped under the table? So so yeah, I think that was that was a lesson over time. And it's not that these things are not worthwhile everywhere. It's that it takes a while to figure out, you know, to do the power mapping and figure out whether or not there's actual, you know, force behind this task that you're being asked to do. And if there is, then maybe it's worthwhile. But if there's not, there's a whole lot of other things you could be spending your time on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one thing that and this is a little bit transitioning a little bit, but and I don't think this is on our notes. I'm going off script. 
I know. <laughs> shows probably like what you know um we, we've had some crazy unscripted episodes but one of the things i think that i'm looking forward to in the the new position i mean i think there will be challenges and i'd like to remind myself that there are no academic utopias mm-hmm. or hell for that matter there are no regular utopias mm-hmm. <laughs> either. not that i'm aware of <laughs> but um you know but but looking forward to one further investigating what what mechanisms and structures that are in place, even though I know sort of automatically in terms of my own sort of personal support system is much more robust in Georgia. So that that's always nice um, when you have that. But looking at the institutional resources, but also looking at potentially sort of collaborating and thinking about how to build, this is a little bit of a transition, but in terms of thinking about academic spaces, particularly virtual academic spaces, because the pandemic has shown us that accessibility is so important and that virtual spaces can make that possible in ways that for all that we you know would love to do and 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 have amazing things on campus and spaces there are intellectual communities what is it virtual writing not virtual writing programs there's an acronym that I'm blanking on the name of it now but virtual writing communities and really just some ways that that we can support and and create um, some structures for up and coming scholars for our own selves, not just up and like I can't wait to get back to writing regularly because I've been grading and mm-hmm. also packing a little bit, but mostly grading and um trying to figure out like some minutiae, like where the hell am I gonna live? You know, I've been doing that kind of stuff too. Yeah, you know, some some somewhat important things. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I like that point though, and something that I've I've been trying to shift my thinking in over time is how do we build those how do I build networks and meaning and connections that extend well beyond that don't ground me in the institution? Right. So that like, you know, my, my job is here and I care for a lot of the people here, but like, I don't want to see the boundaries of this place as the boundaries of my work or the boundaries of, you know, who I am as a scholar and teacher. And so finding more opportunities to do that. And COVID has sort of raised the importance of of that and made it more visible for people who didn't have to grapple with that before. Yeah, that's a, a really great point. Yeah, I think that that's one of the reasons I, I really find our research interesting in that we are able to write about and talk about things that are outside the institution in ways that are meaningful to us. Absolutely. At some point we can talk. I'll be excited to talk to our next guest soon because I had forgotten well, I shouldn't say I've forgotten. Dr. Richardson has such a impressive and daunting academic profile that it's easy for things to go down the list. But I was looking at a couple of her performances. I was like, oh, yeah, the second academic project, like the second monograph, meanwhile, I need to finish the first monograph, is on like blues women and Black women's humor. But I was like, there's going to be a chapter on blues women. I wonder, can I interview that? You know, so you're just <laughs> thinking about like all of these really kind of cool things and amazing things that, that my research allows me to do in a way that, you know, that I just love, you know. Yeah. I, I love that we're teasing our next episode already. This oh, makes yeah. it feel, seem like we, we have our stuff together. Oh, man. Listen, <laughs> I'm telling you, we're getting it together. We're becoming adults in front of your very eyes. That's news to me, but I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so I guess the, the way I wanted to bring this or was hoping to bring this episode home was thinking through what support systems you would like to see more of. What would you be hope to find maybe at your new job? 
Yeah, that's a good yeah, good point in terms of bringing it home. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope so. And this is unfortunate that you can't do everything right when you're researching an institution, you know. So thinking about you know geographic location and the departments and the different areas of research, student makeup, all of that was sort of priority and thinking less about structural things very specific to my needs was less of a priority for me, mostly because I knew I would have a more robust personal support system, as I've said. But having said that, I really hope that there are some structures for parents or I always try to say parents and elder care, even though I'm not taking care of my mom now. But I think there are other people who who need additional resources. And I'm absolutely sure they probably have something like the employee assistance program that exists here, which you can get therapists through. We've only really used the therapist, but I'm absolutely sure they have that kind of family support system. And those are, you know, most public institutions, I think, have those. Those are great. Um, But if there is, uh, and I do think they do have a formal mentoring program within the department and within the college. So those, I think, are very important. I'm pretty sure there is a writing group within the unit. So I can't remember if that's department or college, but I'd ask about that. Um, Even though I have the expectation that the writing group that I'm a part of here will continue, we've said that we'll continue to share work. So yeah, they're, they're, those are some specific things that are you know kind of important to me, um, but hopefully they'll have, I mean, you're in Atlanta, so I shouldn't need like a social outlet. I need that everybody knows that I need to be able to hang out and kick it every now and then. But if you can't <laughs> find something to do in Atlanta, man, I, I don't know what to, what to tell you. What about you? What do you need to sustain your, your uh, work and, and creativity? Yeah, I, you know, I love that phrasing because when I was first, when the job listing for Texas came out, and I was trying to decide, like, do I do I spend my time applying for this thing? It, you know, you and I used to talk a lot at Arkansas about how we know it's, you know, we know what the shitty things are here. We don't know what the shitty things are somewhere else. Like, we don't have no idea if the things we struggle with in this place are everywhere or particular to this place. We don't know what the new things we're going to struggle with at the new place are going to be, right? So I, I texted a, a good friend, Ursula Orr, about, you know, how, what, how do I make this decision, right? And I remember her answer, which is, where can you get your writing done? Like, where will you have enough around you, enough support, enough peace of mind, whatever it is, enough joy in your life that you have the space to get your writing done? And, and I thought about it, and, and I realized that there are resources here, there are communities here that would, that would make that more possible, and which is ultimately what, what helped me make that decision. And so I've talked about some of the things that were struggling about finding community here, but also one of the wonderful things about, about being here is that uh, a good friend and, and mentor was here as well. And she had already established some spaces of gathering, particularly for people of color or for queer people of color and some writing groups and stuff like that. So having access to those things, having, again, that initial person who's going to invite me into a space where I'm totally new, where I don't know anyone, and introduce me, that was, that was really critical uh, for me to make some new connections and finding you know people like you who are willing to be like, hey, this new person that I totally don't know, will you come join us at this event? Will you, you know? Will you be present here? And we will like ask you with interest about what it is that you do. And you know, people who are willing to get to know you as a human, which is... I don't know, sometimes more rare than you would hope it would be in an academic space. And I think particularly about starting in a place during COVID, everybody was so tired of Zoom. 
everybody was so like strained and worn thin so that every time you you met a person you were just trying to get through the zoom call do your work get off the call and it took some like super generous people who were willing to do more than that and like you know again know me as a human and not like the machine who turned out other sorts of work um that actually helped me feel present and gave me the sort of emotional grounding that i needed to to do my work and that that goes back to you know where the institution is missing a lot in terms of how do we, in terms of thinking about all of the employees and students as whole humans who need uh, support systems that get them by. You talked about childcare when when I got to Arkansas. One of my good friends uh, in Jungyun. One of the reasons that we got to know each other in that first year was because we were both brand new assistant professors who had dogs and you know the the new job keeps you on campus sometimes for like ten hours and so by default, we sort of clung to each other as like, you know, you live near me, here's my house key, I need you to go let my dog out. <laughs> they've been pent on all day. Uh, so just having the person to do that, when I got really sick, it was her husband who took me to the hospital, you know, like somebody, somebody you can count on for those like day-to-day life things. So I guess yeah. I'm trying to think of what that means in terms of institutions. Gathering spaces, opportunities for connection, valuing those things, right? Valuing the creation of of spaces that create opportunities for genuine relationships rather than just things that look like productive on paper. Mm-hmm. I think those are those are important. Mm-hmm. Not I mean, if you're gonna talk about it in terms of metrics that matter in capitalism, it makes us more productive, right? It makes us able to do our jobs, but also like it helps us think of ourselves as whole humans who need to who need to live in these spaces, not as machines, but as people. And I think, you know, that's in terms of bringing it home and thinking about capitalism, right? What do you need to write? What in terms of support, in terms of structure, but also in terms of money, right? If Arkansas would have been willing or able, maybe willing, but certainly not able. If somebody wants to build my mom a house or give me the salary that affords me that luxury, then I can absolutely do what I need to do because I've got whatever. And and I only said that to say in the absence of structural spaces or programming or whatever to support faculty. If you have people who are open-minded, you know, leadership that's, I don't want to say transgressive leadership, but, you know, just progressive people who, you know, say to themselves, I don't know about this thing, but I'm, I'm going to support it if my faculty say that I need it. You know, you can, you can throw money at things sometimes and that's okay because what that might empower some institutions or programs to do is like say, you know, to see that power, to say, I don't know what I'm doing, or I don't know what's most useful. How can I best support you? Here are some funds to do the things that you think need to be done, and and then empower the faculty or whoever to do that. I think that works too. You can give people money if you have a sense that, that it will, you know, support productivity and will help improve their quality of life, which ultimately improves their productivity. I mean, yeah, we contribute to communities that we care about, right? And in order for that to happen, you need to you need to show that you care about them. And and money is an important part of that, right? Like we need to be able to have the emotional, mental, like material space and time to commit ourselves to making these spaces more livable and better. And it it goes to the fact that oftentimes structures, institutions are built on these patterns that they take for granted. Like we do these, we do this this way because it's the way it always has been. And we can't do it another way because we've never done it that way. 
But what that overlooks is what's more important, right? The pattern of the way that you've done things or the people that you want doing those things. And so like shifting to value the people that you want in those spaces means also giving them the license to change those spaces into what they need in order to inhabit them, right? So so I think that that's an important thing, right? We need uh, space, time, connection, and we need the resources to be able to make that happen. Awesome. Yeah, I agree. We're we're leaving on the secure the bag note. Like, <laughs> I like it. Give, yeah. Give 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 us money. <laughs> so oh. um yeah, well I think that uh, maybe we'll just put all our social medias. Joe has finally arrived on Twitter. Talk about transition. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have arrived on Twitter. I'm still ambivalent about my feelings on Twitter, but I am yes. on it. <laughs> yeah. So we will put all of our social medias where you can find us, of course, the podcast in our two tweets a year, whatever is as available at the unpack this podcast yeah the unpack this podcast or the underscore i'll put it in social media because i'm butchering that and for sure email us the the unpack this podcast at gmail.com and and stay tuned for our very exciting conversation with dr elaine richardson and thanks for listening we'll catch you next time